This episode is sponsored by Rode Microphones, presenting My Rode Real, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit MyRoadReal.com to get your free starter pack. Today I'm here with Chris Raboys, a re-recording mixer, sound designer, and supervising sound editor on the new Pirates film, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. Dead Men Tell No Tales. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this film. Pleasure. Um, now this is your fourth time around? Fifth. Or fifth? Okay. fifth time around, yeah. And what can you remember from the first time around when you first got on the franchise? Um... Well, I mean, we didn't really know what to start to 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 expect on the first one. We had um, one of the most um, sort of challenging clients in in Gore Verbinski, who there's no detail that he won't uh, dive into very deep. And obviously, on a sonic level, that's a big challenge for a sound crew and a sound designer. Um, the difference, honestly, in this one is that the first Pirates, there was a tremendous amount of sword fights, and this one, there's a few, but mm. not anywhere near the level of swords that was a good thing because sword fights are fun Mm -hmm. but they're hard on the ears and and you know i learned from the first one um through to the fourth one to how to really manage swords uh so so that they can be fun and not taxing but uh I, i did celebrate the fact that we didn't have huge sword battles on this one like I said, yeah. we had a couple, but right. but nothing on the level. This one was uh, much more um, sort of epic scale in terms of events happening. You know, the, the um, right out of the gate, you know, we meet uh, Will and Elizabeth Turner's young child in search of his father, who, uh, you know, for Pirates fans knows that, that Will is... Um, cursed and is at the bottom of the sea with the Davy Jones crew. And so um, this little kid is, you know, determined to go find his father. So right away we, we're introduced to an underwater world and then the rising of the Flying Dutchman, which is a, um, you know, a callback to something we've done in previous films. Um, but, but right out of the gate, we're, we're big and epic. And then out, out of that scene, we're right into a bit of a, a naval battle with cannonballs and blasting in the halls <laughs> and things like that. Um, so it's, you know, it this film sort of starts and never lets up. What can you say just about the library of sounds that you rely on, this world of Pirates of the Caribbean? What do you enjoy about lots of creeks and water laps and sword fights and gunpowder? You know what? <laughs> I have been making a, a living with sounds of water all okay. my life, but, you know, starting way back on Titanic. So yep. I've always loved water sounds. I, I love all organic sounds. I love to take um, natural sounds that I record and process them in such a way that they retain their organic quality and their natural quality, but they become something more than they were in in and of the first recording. Mm-hmm. Um so, and and I love wood creeks and ships, and, and that was a big part of what the library brought initially for the editors was a nautical world of, of the water around us, the atmosphere, as well as the sails and the rigging of these big, tall ships. Um, and, and iconic sounds for, you know, obviously the Black Pearl has its specific set of creeks. And, uh, you know, what's great about Pirates 5 and really kind of... Um, so, each one always has its unique elements, which for a sound designer is a, is a, is a big job. And, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of this, in the nautical world, we're introduced to a new ship 
the Silent Mary, helmed by uh, a Captain uh, Salazar, played, right? Salazar, played yeah. by Javier Bardem. Uh, now that ship is actually a ghost ship, mm-hmm. and it's like this. It's kind of like a skull or a skeleton of a ship f- gliding through the water, and it it uh, rises up and consumes pirate ships. He's he's got a basically uh, his whole focus in his in his death mm-hmm. <laughs> is to go after pirates, and and uh, so that was a new challenge. It, it you know that that obviously the library didn't address those needs of a new ship, so we had to completely start from scratch there. Um, and now that's part of the the pirates library going forward. Yeah. So what were some what was some of the direction of characteristics of how you wanted to represent it this this new ship. I was at first kind of, I was struggling to figure out what to do because it doesn't, its hull is a, is, a, is sort of a, um, like I say, a skeleton or mm-hmm. a vertebra gliding through the water. And I was trying to figure out how do you sell that? I mm-hmm. mean, because obviously it's not propelled by, it's propelled by its dark magic really mm-hmm. more than its um, geometric shape. Uh, and then it has this ability to articulate itself and rise up over ships and swallow it. So, um I was really, it was it really was kind of, I didn't know how, where to go with that. I thought, well, you know, I, I, I got into my pond and I pulled uh, various uh, contraptions of wood trying to get like an interesting gliding sound. But, you know, it all sounds like rushing water, mm. which was fine. Actually, it, it played a component to support the ship. But, but what really became the signature of that ship was um, it... Throughout all the Pirates films, we always joke, Paul Massey and I, because Gore used to do this, and actually Yoakum would do it too, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to him that Gore did it previously, they would always go, it needs a really guk guk guk, really good guk 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 guk. And um, <laughs> so I, you know, I couldn't use one of the stuttering wood creeks that we'd created for the, the other ship, so I, I was uh, actually working with my oldest son who is building a, um, a big giant barn that I use for recording mm-hmm. uh, up in Mendocino for me. And, and he had designed and constructed these 800 pound, two 800 pound doors, which took us, um, it was a pretty scary experience trying to hang these doors. Oh, sure, yeah. With four massive steel hinges. And one of them got hung, we had a crane sort of, a, a giant forklift Holding slash it, crane, yeah. you know, to, to mount it. And one of them got hung slightly askew, and he was pretty despondent about the fact that um, it made this horrific groan. And I was over <laughs> the moon because yeah, that yeah. groan really fed me the, um, sig- you know, a component to derive the signature groan that that you will hear throughout the movie now yeah. for the Silent Mary. So that was, uh, yeah, it was a big victory for me. Something that I really felt. I, I, I just love the origin of it, and I love what it does within the picture. And um, and uh, and uh, you know, since then a carpenter's come and, and straightened the door, so it doesn't make that doesn't sound make the sound anymore. anymore. Uh, shoot, I, I imagine at nighttime you'd hear the groan of of Salazar's ship and the property. Right, and then of course, just like the Davy Jones crew. Um, you know Salazar's crew had their own sounds that yeah. that that really uh had to sort of convey their presence because um Salazar himself is you just see bits and pieces of his of his body parts of it are just gone and other parts are like a charred s- skeleton and some of his crew are are literally you you barely see anything of their body and just see some 
some clothing hanging off them. So that that was a challenge that was really thrown to Jack and I from the directors, that they wanted to feel this presence of these ghosts, and specifically Salazar himself needed to not only have this presence of his skeletal body, but also um, this uh, raspy sort of it's asthmatic breathing, right? breathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, and that probably became the biggest challenge audio-wise on the show in that um, we spent a year chasing mm. down uh, what that what that sound was going to be. And I can't think of how many hundreds of sounds we, we mm. tested, but we, we basically found one raspy exhale that Yoakum liked. Mm. And, you know, this guy inhales and exhales probably 500 times in the picture. So yeah, one yeah, is yeah. not going to do us. Yeah. And But what we got a buy off on a direction and we used that as a, um, a sort of a bouncing board to include our dialogue team, which is the big thing that I celebrate on all these pictures is making sure that I'm working collaboratively with my crew because whatever talent I have is always going to be um, exponentially elevated by the talent of my crew. So I brought in the, all of our dialogue people and let them take a, a, a whack at it, and they all brought it further forward to where mm-hmm. Yoakum was starting to respond positively. And then we discovered that if if we could really nail down to what he wanted, that maybe the best thing to do was to bring in some talented loop groupers and have them perform it. Mm. And and so um, we brought uh, Anna McKenzie, who was one of the lead ADR supervisors on the show. She brought in a group of people, and we auditioned them and picked a handful of them. And then they performed it or performed a, a scene, and then uh, Yoakum picked the one he liked, and, and that became the basis. But in that process, we had run it through, you know, uh, the dialogue mixer and music mixer was uh, Paul Massey, who's, uh, he and I have worked together on these for many years together. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make sure that he was happy with it because ultimately I wanted to give it to his side of the board to handle. So he did some processing. I did some processing. We collaborated that together. Then they got the performance and then it was brought back to him, all edited and approved by Yoakum. But you have to understand that's about a year and a half long process yeah. to get there. What is it about what is <laughs> those moments of being patient and working with your your it's director? The, you know? um, that's one of the big challenges of yeah. the business is that um, you know we can all sit down and by ourselves make some really cool sounds. Yeah, yeah. But your job is not to make a sound that's cool to you. It's your job as a sound designer is to make a sound that works to to tell the story the way that the directors envision it being told. Mm. And and that's, uh, I think, the challenge of all sound designers is, uh, you know, if, if you think that this is about you making sounds that make you happy, then you're probably in the wrong business, mm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You really want, you, you, you're making a movie for somebody who's got a vision, and, and your job is to help them sonically realize that vision and, and to do it in a way that propels the story and elevates the story. And so um, it's... The, it's the pressure and the challenge of a sound designer to spend a year and a half not knowing if you're ever going to nail that sound and make your director happy. I was going to ask you how the you know how it was in terms of the production tracks versus what you guys is, were working through. Um, it it was. Uh, I mean, I that I, I I suppose I could leave that to Paul to answer because he's sure. really had okay. But uh, I think by and large, it was we had a great 
production track and mm-hmm. and and Yoakum and Espen are um like most directors they're incredibly um wedded to their production okay. so while there was a tremendous amount of ADR done there was a tremendous amount of energy put into saving the production. Preserving the production, okay. And, and, That's fine, yeah. And nine times out of ten, we went with the production. Okay. Yeah, but in terms of, um, you know, uh, we had two dedicated uh, ADR people, um, Anna McKenzie that I, I mentioned, and then uh, Katie Wood, who I've worked with for many years. She came up from New Zealand, and she's one of the top dialogue editors down in LA and she kind of took the job on and ran it for a, almost a year, but she had other commitments. So Anna came in and the two of them were seamless. They were just rock solid. And then we had a, um, a great crew up here with um, Chris Gridley, who's one of our top dialogue editors, as well as Marshall. Um, what's Marshall's last name? Wynn, Marshall Wynn, <laughs> worked on a number of pictures with me. And so he, he was the first person to tackle um, the Javier Bardem breathing, hand it to Chris, then hand it to Anna. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in keeping with my theory that, um, you know, y- you, you lean on the talents of your crew to help you get through these mm-hmm. in, 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 a, in a major way, and it elevates everybody's sort of performance. Can you tell if there's any difference between from film to film? Um, just a, kind of a consistency continuity in terms of how you guys kind of tr- um, spot your your scenes or um, is there a difference do you, do you feel and you know it's almost like there's a path mm-hmm. there's it's almost as if there's a path because you know we we know I mean we, we, you know for instance if we're on in a ship on a ship yeah. and and we know what the ship is dealing with in terms of weather whether it and and in terms of whether there's thunder and things of that nature we just sort of had a have a a path of sounds that we yo- use to build those worlds not that we use the same sounds all the time but mm-hmm. that we create this this feeling one of the the things that I think you'll notice when you're um one of the things you'll notice on pirates is that when you're out at sea, y- that the world around you is really going to envelop you with this nautical sense. That mm-hmm. you really feel that there's the ocean beyond, and and up above you is this, you know, the the singing and movement of these giant um, masts holding all sorts of rigging and mm-hmm. all of that. So, so we sort of have a, a a path that we've followed, and and and. I would have to say this one, I had to sort of reiterate that a little bit because sadly I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really realize this until now, but I didn't have any of the veteran people come back to work on this. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of them have retired and some of them have moved on. Well, you know, I, I, I've said in the past, you know, I, there's a lot of young talented sound supervisors that came up under the Pirates franchises and have become supervisors unto themselves. And, and so now, you know, they're, mm-hmm. um, they're out there in the world doing their own great stuff with both Tim Nielsen, Addison Teague, Shannon Mills. All three of those guys have spent a lot of, uh, have a lot of tenure on the Pirates mm-hmm. films. And then, um, Unfortunately, I couldn't get JR to work on it, who's worked on some of the previous films because he's sort of super in demand. Mm-hmm. But um, 
And, and Addison Teague was going to work on it, but then the, the schedule of it shifted so much that he took on a show that I was going to do, and I just stayed on Pirates so that I could, you know, keep the consistency. So it was an entirely new crew, and, and I really had to sort of walk them through and, and have them listen to old Pirates films to get a sense of how important it is to sell this nautical world, sell the iconic sounds of each ship. And um, the cannons and mm-hmm. and also the level of detail that we always try to achieve in these films. It's a lot of layers that that go into a Pirates film that um, people probably don't even notice. But I feel like selling this wet, creaky, iconic <laughs> world that Jack Sparrow lives in, uh, uh, you know, coupled with the fact that you have to really play the comedy very on on key all the time. Mm. Um, that's a that's sort of a signature of all pirates films, and this one brought all of that to the fore. So um, spotting wise, that and, and again we had uh, you know Tom, uh, Kenny and Tommy in, from the picture department. Those guys really uh, kind of set a high bar because <laughs> they went through all of our old sounds and cut the very best ones. Sometimes in great places, and sometimes in places where I'd say, well, well you can't use that sound there because yeah, yeah. it's signature of this, but. That you know they they sort of set a bar that was so incredibly good, and I thought, oh great, now we have to better this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was uh, wasn't a traditional spotting in that sense. Okay. Yeah, and there's some of the ambiences when you're on land, uh, some of the jungles, you're hearing the birds, the insects, mm. the winds. Sure. What are those sources for you? Like, what was the direction that you were given, and that you like to treat the how do you, how do you treat those? Um. Well, you know, it's funny with the Pirates of the Caribbean, you think, oh, great, we're going to do all kinds of really cool jungle sounds. And we have a huge jungle library created for the Pirates films. Um, Mm -hmm. But we just haven't really gotten to use them that much because, as it turns out, we just don't spend that much much time in jungles. But when we do, you'll see that we kind of come alive with it because we have Mm -hmm. all this great stuff we want to use to to sell it. And um, there's there's one of the really... Funny scene, funniest scenes in the film takes place inside a whalebone on a sh- on a beach. But prior to that, um, it's it's a it's a wedding, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is just hilarious in and of itself. But prior to that, the, the you know our Jack and and um, basically our heroes get captured in nets inside a jungle, and so that's really the only time i'm thinking that we got to Mm -hmm. celebrate this kind of very thick jungle you know uh, classic rainforest type of atmosphere yeah Um, most of the time we were we were either at water we were or we were on a shore or we were um you know in a jail in a in a in a um Mm -hmm. a courtyard filled with soldiers things of that nature yeah Treating, um, we were talking earlier about water laps, but also thinking about the uh, surrounds and, mm-hmm. and some of the overheads. When I saw it, I actually saw it in the, um, the Oro Barco 11.1 format. Okay, how'd it sound? It sounded good. I was, I was, I was a little bit further back, but um, I was pleasantly surprised. It's, it's actually like the type of, it's an, uh, I think it was like a Cinemark XD, really big screen, really big space, not like an IMAX. But um, hopefully, it felt immersive. Yeah, I mean, we were pretty. As a, as a mixer, I was pretty aggressive with how much we used uh, surround material mm-hmm. and 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 even the overheads as well. It's it's a it's a new challenge for mixers uh, these sort of immersive formats. Um, how many did you do for this? How many different other 
besides the Barco? Well, well, we did Dolby Atmos. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Barco must have been mastered from Dolby Atmos because we okay. didn't do we did a okay. we did a um, IMAX version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott Milan did the IMAX version for us, both the five O and the twelve O. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how the Barco happened, to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> but I think that they, they use um, a program that, that basically intelligently you know repurposes the, the Dolby Atmos track. So was it a native um, Dolby Atmos? It was a na- native Dolby Atmos, yeah. yeah. And I, I think now you've been, I don't, how many pictures do you think you've done with a native mix now? I don't know. They're almost all native now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, with the exception of Pete's Dragon, um, which I did it a year or two ago. Yeah. I think every film I do is native Atmos. What do you and find then, like when you listen back in terms of starting in in an immersive format? How do you treat your your five one seven ones? Um, what do you think? Well, of them then? okay, so on pirates, I I dialed them quite like five one and seven one. I dialed the um, the ceiling material back quite a bit mm-hmm. on on the mastering of those two formats from the native mix. And the reason being is I just felt, um, and, and it's part of the, I'll, I'll admit that it's part of the education of me. And I, mm. I think everybody's still learning how to really use Atmos effectively. And the biggest challenge is for a mixer is on a, um, a film that's really busy, <laughs> that's got a lot going on. Atmos is triply difficult because you're trying to, you know, that. Jim Cameron's always said clarity is king, mm-hmm. and it is. In a mix, you need to be able to hear the components. And if you have too many components, then you won't hear any of them. And if you have too many, um, you know, sort of layers, you'll muddy the music and you'll get in the way of the dialogue. So it's 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 a very, um, you know, you have to be really careful how you put all these tracks together. You, you know, you have create all these great sound designed moments and then you have the, the editors cut all these incredible tracks, Yeah, yeah. but how much of them you actually play in the final mix is, is, uh, is, is always the big challenge. Mm-hmm. And in, in pirates, because we were out in the ocean, because we were out in the atmosphere, at one point we go into, um, the devil's triangle, which is a very atmospheric world. And we have a lot of things going over our head. We have, you know, everything from ghosts to mass to, you know, sort of ethereal creaks and this and that. So there's a whole lot going up in the ceiling. And I found that when you fold it down to the 7151 format, it became a little too thick. Okay. And so I wanted to thin it out. Um, and, and, and so I would say that, you know, that was the appropriate thing to do in this case. Mm. But it also taught me that, I want to. There's a number of ways to mix Dolby Atmos, and I think um, it's easy to take this sort of magic route where you let a lot of stuff just kind of bloom up there and mm-hmm. just sort of naturally let it magically go up there. And mm-hmm. I don't like that approach. Okay. And and I think I kind of did a little bit of that on Pirates and a little, and and I also tried to manage it quite heavily as well. And and now I'm starting to feel like if I, I I'm still always at this point in my career I've been doing this a pretty long time I'm still trying to figure out how to get more and more clarity out of my tracks, and and Pirates was a dense enough track that it taught me some really interesting lessons, and and I came away from it going oh man I've put too much in the overheads it's too busy mm-hmm. back there and everything mm-hmm. but then I just David Fleur mastered a home Atmos uh, of of Pirates mm-hmm. and then sent it up to me and I spent a day listening in my room and we put yeah. put Atmos in here and 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 I thought you know what 
for the home market, this is cool. Okay. There's so much going on up there. There's so much energy. It never detracts from what's on screen. Yeah. And so it's just, I don't know, it's just an interesting education in this business, how you learn and unlearn all sorts of things. And you, and, and the minute you stop experimenting and questioning yourself and, 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 and getting aggressive and then getting and then reeling back, I, I think that's the key to being fresh and doing mm-hmm. a good job for your client is, is pushing the envelope and knowing when you've pushed it too hard. So Yeah, I think there's obviously there's standards, but then there's creative decisions that you're making that kind of dictate kind of what you're, what foot you're putting forward. For you, do you find that the fundamentals of maybe when before immersive formats were around, do those still apply when you are mixing in? I mean, well, yeah. I mean, again, the the whole notion of of creating clarity so that you know you have a track when you're out on the ocean, you hear the creaks of the of the mass yeah. up above, but you but it doesn't detract from the dialogue. In order to get that kind of transparency to your track, you, you those principles apply whether you're dealing with mono or 5.1 yeah, or 7.1 yeah. or what mm-hmm. have you. Uh, and Atmos only makes them more challenging, mm-hmm. really. Um, the thing that I have always said, and I don't think any mixer would uh, would disagree with me, is that, you know, that nobody gives us more money or more time for Dolby Atmos, um, but it's a lot more difficult to mix that way because mm-hmm. y- now you just have to make that many more decisions or else you end up with a really thick track, which doesn't serve anything. Um, so it's a, it's uh, all the principles apply that applied early on. They just now become even more important. I'm just thinking back. Was the Hobbit one of the first ones you did? Yeah, when I, you I, came down I, to New Zealand. I'm with thinking, us I remember the moment of kind of like this is the approach. This is how it integrates with Pro Tools or the board, and I feel like it, the technology is maybe gone out of the way a little it's not as such a it's become more streamlined yeah. i still think everybody does it differently right um on on the hobbit film we had number one we had it was new technology and so you know we had that challenge and and at the same time we had a director who really wanted to see what he could do with this new yeah, format yeah, yeah. which was cool um and we had dolby down there you know like really kind of pouring a lot of assets into helping us make it happen. Yeah. Um, so that was great. Now it's the, the you know, the budgets haven't grown any to accommodate <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. more complicated mix. But um, it's just, now it's just a foregone conclusion that we'll do it. And what what I find hard is to get, I I relish the concept of a, of a, director saying well let's get into it let's find what Mm. what can we put up there how can we work Mm -hmm. this and um because you know making these films is such a massive endeavor and just doing the soundtrack regardless of the format that you're doing is such a massive challenge that it's it's you just don't really get the opportunity to have those kind of conversations so you're having that conversation with yourself and your crew Mm. figuring out how much can we get away with without pulling anybody off the screen in terms of their attention um and of course, pirates just gave us all the assets <laughs> that we wanted. Uh, so it's a it's a very active track. If somebody were to um, get into the home Atmos world, they would have a lot of fun with this. Yeah, yeah. it's really going to be a, a fun ride. Do you find that there's other staples to kind of the tools that you surround yourself with in terms of plugins, ex- any external hardware? What, what is it that you always find yourself leaning? You know, it's towards? funny. I'm a, I'm an old school guy, clearly. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, I'm very much, uh, you know, I love working on the, you know, latest generation of digital consoles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we mixed this, 
let me think now. Did we? Yeah, well, this was exclusively on the DFC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, everybody always asks me what's my favorite console to work on, and my answer is whichever one is employing me right mm-hmm. now because I don't really have a choice. When I'm mixing in New Zealand, I'm on the Euphonics, which mm-hmm. is a great console. Skywalker, I'm on a DFC. If I'm over at Sony, I'm on the Harrison. I've yet to do a Pro Tools mix on an S6, S6 yeah. but I own some of that hardware, and, mm-hmm. and we did employ that heavily in um, the first year of Pirates because we had to do a lot of temp mixes. So I basically uh, mixed, pre-mixed all the temp mixes on an S3, which is the baby brother to the mm-hmm. S6, um, partially because I wanted to get familiar with it. And, and, you know, one of these days, I suppose, or, you know, maybe very soon, I'll be mixing on the <laughs> S6. And and I, I know a lot of people say it does some incredible things. Um, but I, I in terms of staples... It, 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 I, I am very comfortable with traditional consoles. Um, I'm very comfortable with having, you know, uh, um, no plugins in the way mm-hmm. of what I'm working on. I'm, again, pretty old school. Mm-hmm. I certainly use plugins a lot when I'm sound designing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have my go-to ones for that, um, which we could talk about if you like. But in terms of <laughs> yeah, mixing, please. I... Uh, I love my outboard DBX subharmonic. I love the <laughs> TC6000, and I love the Lexicon 480. And that's about all I use that's all you need, outboard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, in, in the DFC, you've got great dynamics. You've got incredible EQ. Um, so, you know, you, you really have everything you need. You have to be careful, too. I really think, from a mixer's perspective, less is more. And, and, and getting caught up too much in all this stuff you can do... I'd rather do all of that when I'm designing. Um, and when I'm designing, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'll i use a fair amount of isotope from time to time when I have to in terms of uh, getting rid of noises that I don't want. I, 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 it's a pretty light touch, but I will use it from time to time. Sure. I love some of the um, PSP dynamics. Uh, I, I definitely use a, a little bit of AltaVerb. I love the Forest program there. That's often a go-to for me. Um, I, lo- I also love Valhalla, uh, mm. which is, a, a, I think, a really um, kind of classic reverb. The, the, with uh, things like AltaVerb, I, people say, well, do you use that when you're mixing? I've never really figured out how to make it usable <laughs> yeah, for yeah, me yeah, for yeah, mixing. Yeah. But in yeah. a design format, it's really, I find it very useful. Yeah. Um, and, and I love the Fab Filter. I've, I've always... You know, I love the fact that on with FabFilter, you can take a look at your waveform and you can really see as well as hear what's going on with your sound. So I use that a lot. Um, and do you find, are, are you an uh, early adopter? Or are you who, do you find that you're interested in what other people are doing and see if it applies or you stick to? No, I no. don't. <laughs> okay. I mean, I love, to, I, <laughs> yeah. I love to hear these guys talk about yeah, it, yeah, all, yeah. The, all these sound designers that, yeah. uh, um, you know, and and I love to collaborate with people, you know, on sure. on the Javier processing. I did. I built a, a a chain of processing of plugins and handed them over to to Paul. Yeah. And said, do what Whatever you think. You want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kind of looked at what they were doing and created his own version of yeah. that. And I think he retained some of the processing. I, I love the. Um, I mean, there's no Synclavier in here. Right behind you. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> is there? Oh, geez, there is. Wow. Okay. So there's um, there's still a Synclavier here, and you have another keyboard behind you here. Yeah. So yeah. what is it so, about? So okay. This well, what's going yeah. on with that is two things. Um, I'm 
you know, we're, we're, I'm I love contact and I love uh, the native instrument instrument stuff. Yeah. And I'm getting better and better at it. But I'm sort of spoiled. I keep finding myself going back to my old standby, which is the Synclavier, and it, and it's. Uh, the reason being is is that I kind of know how it works and I can work really fast and also it 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 um it does something that I've not found another device mm-hmm. able to do in that it allows me to climb outside of my head and perform a sound okay. and 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 sort of um get the benefit of serendipity in my sound design which um you know it, it's one thing when you have a sound and it's on a hard disk and you you juxtapose it to another sound and you apply a plug in and all that stuff mm-hmm. but there's a fair amount of mechanical work in that with the Synclavier, it's very intuitive and very performance based and so i i kind of get rid of that technical mm. noise in a way and I can it's almost like I feel like I'm a, a surfer on a wave and <laughs> I just get a sound and I start playing with it and it starts telling me things and I start experimenting in a way that I don't even have to process in my head and that's what I struggle with with all the plugins it's like okay bring up this thing it's, it's too it's many like steps all, too yeah. many steps yeah, yeah, yeah. too many steps and it becomes mechanical when did you start using a synclavier what was the first project do you think Ooh, well day one here at Skywalker. Okay. I mean, you know, I saw Ben Burt and Gary Rydstrom using it, and I probably learned it uh, back when I was about 28 years old. You didn't have to go on eBay to buy one then either. I bought <laughs> I bought several yeah, yeah. Out, out in the open market, <laughs> and so I have my own personal one, and I have uh, I had Brian George, who was one of the early New England digital yep. uh, engineers. He built me one of my own, and I have one here at Skywalker, and I just it just works for me. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, I like I tell my assistant, he's always like, well, can you teach me how to use it? Yeah, sure, sit and watch me use it, you know, and, you, and right. I'll, I'll teach you. But I I would tell every young sound designer, don't bother trying to learn the Synclavier because it is archaic old technology. Yeah. It's not the fidelity. You, you have to learn how to deal with the fidelity. It's got sure. a great sound that you can't get out of yeah. anything else. But it's also, you've got you've to gotta get put some hormones on the back end of it to get <laughs> it to really step up really to, so, the, yeah, yeah. to the dynamic range that we're dealing with these days um and that's why i wanted to play with contact because and you know i wanted to see if i could kind of turbocharge the contact to be a little bit more visceral a little bit more um synclavier like Mm. but but give me hey josh i'm in an interview can i call you right back okay almost done no it's okay I, i i i would like to see if i can get contact to um do some things that that the Synclavier does very quickly, and then gain some of the tools that it has underneath its hood that the Synclavier doesn't offer me. Mm. Um, and also, you know, going forward, I mean, with the with you know, I don't want to be an old stick in the mud and just use the old technology. I mm. want to make sure that I'm I'm perusing all of the great stuff, and so. I probably own every plug-in out there, <laughs> and I'll experiment with them, and in, quite often I'll buy one and play with it, and I'll go, yeah, okay, that's not sure. something that I like, but I, I still own it, so yeah, I, yeah, you yeah. know, I occasionally I'll use things. I have my my go-tos, and I, I, I believe that you know you have to constantly stay up with technology and find the good stuff, but not throw out the old stuff because it's no longer the 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 um, soup du jour, if mm-hmm. you will. So. I try to. I really try to blend it and use it all together. That's great. Yeah. And uh, you know, I find that sometimes I can create a sound on the on the con- on contact that I'll then 
sample into the Sinclair and then I can bend it 25 different ways. Um, and so I find that collaborative sort of step of using multiple old and new technologies together is, is really works for me. Mm. Lastly, what can you say about ha- wearing many hats when it comes to not only cutting but mixing your effects? Is there a different attention that you have or perspective? Yeah, it's, it, what, what does that do it, for it you? Is, uh, it is truly a different – you're wearing a different hat for each discipline. And, and I guess I sort of dabble in three. I, I, yeah. I, you know, Number one, I'm the sound designer, and, and I, these days – I always say, well, I'm, I'll sound design this movie, but I want to bring in other young sound designers and let them do some design as well. I, I don't want to be the only sound designer. Yeah. Um, and then supervising is more of a management thing. And, and I'm not all that good at it, but <laughs> I, uh, I always pair myself with somebody that really is. And yeah. in, in terms of the Pirates film, I, I, I kind of got a double win in that I got this incredible a- editor in Jack Whitaker. Um, and when I saw how good of an editor he was, I, I thought to myself, well, you know, because Addison has to move on to this other show and schedules changed, I should see if, if Jack would be willing to take on the role of supervising. And, and it turns out that he was just an excellent supervisor. So I, I, I won there. And then when I, when I become the mixer, when I start pre-dubbing and, and, um, final mixing it's just i'm in a whole different world i keep a sound design room at the ready and and sometimes i'll go and do some design if i have to in the end of the evening or on the weekends <laughs> but i try to limit that i try to make sure that i've nailed all of the sound design issues that i can and then i you know i'll, I'll hand some of them off and on pirates i was lucky enough to have a super talented group of people that were all game to take on anything i threw their way bard and tormud the the norwegian fx editors and sound designers did some really great stuff um but i really i do have to sort of think from a mixing perspective and if if i or somebody has made the coolest sound in the world as a mixer if it's not working for the track it's gone in a split second mm-hmm. and that's just the way that i i don't get i don't get prejudicial to anything i've created or somebody else has created yeah. i i listen to the track and i figure out where my role is there and if if a sound that's in front of me is not part of that role it it's it's gone and if it if it's really embellishing that role then i'll then i'll make you know make it work so how do, how, i mean how do you avoid fatigue or not or having perspective well the truth is i f- for me personally, I mean, these mixes, something like a Pirates, you come out of it and you've just run the L.A. Marathon times three. Mm-hmm. And so I find that, you know, creatively, it's wonderful for me to go through an intense mix. And and then when I'm done with the film, my next project will typically be something where I start reading the script and I start going out and doing some recording and, mm. and working with my assistant, Lucas, to go out and do recording and start creating sounds. And, and I look at some of these other mixers and I'm in awe that, you know, we've just finished this a massive mix, working incredibly long hours, seven days a week, and you're going right back onto another one. For me, I, I feel like going back into the design phase on a film and then building up to the mix phase, it's the way that I survive. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's what I've always done and, and it feels like the right approach because by the time I get to the mix, I'm ready for that intensity and, and I haven't burned myself out because I've been on the, the previous big massive tent pole. I, I've, I've had this ramp up period that, that you know starts with creating sounds and recording sounds and all of that. So yeah. that's really, to, for me, the only way I can survive because this is a consuming industry and, and the hours are 
pretty demanding. I think the my the moment that still sticks with me is I think when you guys came in for a screening of Avatar, and uh, I think maybe it was the mixed team and everyone was kind of walking in just completely just done with the film. Right. And right. So let's, now let's watch it one more time with with the director and an audience. And I think there were probably still notes that you guys were wanting to do, and it just it it's not done until it's it's really done. Yeah, and and you know the 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 end days on a project like Pirates or Avatar yeah. are some of the hardest because yeah. you 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 haven't had enough sleep, you're under stress, and and like you say, there's things you want to do, yeah. and 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 likely at that point it's too late. Right. So you better. I've learned that if there's things I want to do, get them done and get them done early. <laughs> um, and, or, you know, make sure that you have the communication with your client so that if there's, you know, th- th- any number of times I'll go to a client and say, there's something I really want to do. Would you allow me to do it? And sometimes they'll say yes. And sometimes they'll say, no, I'm really happy with how that's playing. And I want to move on. Yeah. It. And that's, if that's what they say, then that's where we go. Yeah, the, the, the bottom line in this is that you have to have the director's trust. They have to know that you're doing what they want done and, and that they can trust you to do that. So I take that as a as sort of a, um, you know, just an edict of the business that I have to live by. So That's awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. This is a lot of fun. My pleasure, Michael. It's great <laughs> to talk to you again. Thanks again for tuning in to my chat with Christopher Boys about his work on Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tale No Tales. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, presenting My Road Real, the world's largest short film competition. Now with over $500,000 in prizes to be won, visit myroadreel.com to get your free starter pack. <laughs>